John chapter 8 is where we're going to be. It, so if I get questions sometimes and people say, well, what's a Bible church? Um, um, I don't, I, what does that mean? And sometimes I fumble around, you know, I was like, I don't know, we're, we're kind of like Baptists, but we're not. And I, I mean, I, I don't know. There's probably a good answer. I don't really have it. This will answer that question today. What is a Bible church? Um, because we are going to be in one of the most difficult and significant and um, defining passages in all of Scripture. Um, John chapter 8. So chapter 7 and chapter 8 go together. We've been studying the book of John. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 go together. Chapter 7 is kind of a warm-up to the very weighty discussion that Jesus is going to have with the Jewish leaders. And this is the discussion. This is the one that leaves no room for you to be neutral about Jesus. So what I mean by that is, you either believe, okay, this guy is, is exactly who he says he is, that he is, you know, beyond real comprehension. I mean, let's be honest. He, he had no beginning. I mean, he, he's from heaven. He's from eternity past. There is no beginning and there's no end. It's an alpha and the omega. Never started, will never end, has always been the son of the living God who by his word spoke the heavens and the earth into being, is the author of life. And, and so you, you think, that, that's hard to get my mind around, you know, because he was born in a stable, in a manger, in, in Bethlehem, in the middle of nowhere. But that's who he is. He's God made flesh and dwelling among us for our good, for our hope, okay? So that's one, that's one conclusion that you can have. The, the other conclusion, and, and listen, Jesus and John, the gospel writer, leaves no middle ground. The other one is, no, the guy's a liar. In fact, he's worse than a liar. He's, he's uh, you know, as old C.S. Lewis used to say, he's either, you know, he's a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. I mean, there, he either is out of his mind or he is wicked and evil and blasphemous. I mean, there's no, no place to come out of this chapter and out of what Jesus says to say things like, you know what, I, Jesus is pretty cool. I mean, I like him, and he's a good moral example, and a, you know, I hope my kids grow up and are like him, and uh, you know, you can't do that. Or put him in the category with people like, you know, Buddha and Gandhi, and um, you know, I mean, these people are, you know, they're for peace, and, and we like people that are for peace. Nope, you can't do that either, because Buddha and Gandhi never said things like Jesus is going to say, we're going to see this morning. So, that, I mean, that's the dividing line, and that's what creates 
this hostility amongst the religious leaders that will end in them putting Jesus to death. And so that's, that's how we'll feel this morning. And I, I want to show you how Jesus is going to make these claims that they fully understood on one level and on another level um, they, didn't, they couldn't quite understand, but they knew enough to know what Jesus was claiming about himself. So th- with that introduction, um, let's uh, go to John chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. And really the only way to, just trying to be creative and you know, put it into some fancy outline and, you know, that rhymed. And I, I, I don't know. I couldn't do it. Um, so we're just going to go kind of verse by verse. I hope I get all the way to the end. I didn't in the first hour, but um, this is kind of practice anyway, so now I'm ready. Uh, so chapter 8, verse 12, here's what it says. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light. Okay. So Jesus is standing in the temple. We find this out from the beginning of of, uh, John chapter 7. Chapter 2 tells us it's the, or chapter 7 verse 2, it's the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. The month is October. The Feast of Booths is this celebration where the Jews come together in Jerusalem. Uh, It's one of the couple of main feasts that they have. Um, Passover's in the spring, Feast of Booths is in the fall. And they come together and they're celebrating. That's why it's called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. Because they come, they are in Jerusalem, and they live in tents for seven days. It's an eight-day ceremony. The eighth day is this huge feast. And, and it's, it's, um, it's singing and dancing and celebration. It was wildly popular. The, the harvest is over. Um, you know, uh, uh, Thanksgiving's around the corner. I mean, all these fun things about... That's a joke. All right, so all these fun things about the, the Feast of Booze. It was very festive, and so um, you find out that's where this takes place. It's during the Feast of Booths. You find out in chapter 7, verse 37, it's the last day of the Feast of Booths. It's in the temple in this, in this courtyard area, and um, Jesus is standing and saying, I am the light of the world. And the immediate context is this. There were two ceremonies they did. They kind of acted them out. One was this water-drawing ceremony. So they would, they would run down to the pool. They would get this water. They would come, and they'd pour out the water and make a big deal of it. And it was this reminder. Remember, the Feast of Booths is remembering God's provision in the wilderness. And there were three big provisions. One was the manna. The other was the water that came from the rock. And the other was God's presence with them, leading them it, by the, you know, the cloud by day, the fire by night, the, the fiery pillar. And so the, the first one was they'd come, they pour the water out, and in chapter 7, Jesus uses that as an illustration to say, I, I'm the living water. And it's only three verses on that one in chapter 7. This, he says, about the second ceremony they observed, and it was on the last night. Some, some believe it was every night some scholars believe it was the last night, but they had these huge candles that they put on these um, tall pillars, and they would extend out from the courtyard up above the skyline of the temple, and they would say about these four candles or candelabras, 
that the, they would do it when it got dark and then all the other lights would be put out in Jerusalem and the light from these pillars would shine all through Jerusalem. You, you could see it from anywhere you were. They would sing and dance under it all night long and then at the end of it, they'd blow it out and they'd wait till the next year to do it. Well, Jesus stands up here in the midst of this. Probably as they're getting the pillars ready and everybody's... And he says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So two things about it. He declares himself to be the light, not just a light, the light. And not just of Israel, but the light of the world, which speaks back to prophecies from Isaiah that, that in the future when God comes, he, he'll, light, he'll be light for the world and light to the Gentiles. And, and, and in the Old Testament, you have this, this idea that, that the light was the presence of God and the light was the word of God. Your, uh, your, your word is a, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so it's rich with all of this language, not to mention the fact that you've got light and darkness in it, and it, there's symbols all through the Old Testament and through John's gospel of life and, and death. In fact, you can go back to the very beginning of Genesis, and you see that when God speaks creation, the, the setting is that the earth is uh, darkness covered the deep, and there was, and it was a chaos, and it was void. And into that, God says. Let there be light. And so Jesus is claiming about himself, I am the light of the world. In fact, John has already done that. At the very beginning of John's gospel, if you remember, we looked at it. It said in, in John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness... And the darkness has not overcome it. And so light is a theme that continues to appear. Now, the, one other thing I want you to see about this, and then I, well, we're gonna, we are moving on, all right? But so when he says, I am the light of the world, that, that's the second of seven I am statements in John. So the first one he, he, we saw in chapter 6, where he says, I, I am the bread of life. And this one is, I am the light of the world. Well, interestingly enough, you could call John chapter 8 the I am chapter because Jesus is going to say that three, maybe four more times throughout this argument. I am. And it takes us back to Exodus where Moses says after at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, he says, well, so... I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to tell them that the, God's, the God of our fathers has sent me. And then they're going to say, oh, yeah, well, what's his name? And so what am I to tell them? And then God says to him, you tell them, I am sent you. And that is the language Jesus is going to use about himself in John chapter 8. Now, Let's get back to the text in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony's not true. 
Okay, the Pharisees, they're making a logical and a biblical argument. And, and, the, and the, it goes like this, the testimony of one person is not evidence. So think about this like a trial. And the Pharisees, they're the prosecutors, and Jesus is the defense. And the prosecutors are saying, listen, you're bringing this evidence, but it's not really evidence because the testimony of one person is not evidence. They're, they're seeking to clarify the legal standards by which evidence can be believed. So logically, listen, a person's testimony about themselves is not sufficient. You could walk in here and say, you know what? I'm a superhero and I can fly. Say, okay. Um, anybody ever seen you do it? Nope. I don't do it when people are around. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's not sufficient, and you need medication. All right, so that's what we would say to them. Now, biblically, though, they're also arguing because God's Word set a standard. And in a single witness, you find out in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19, a single witness isn't sufficient. you got to have two witnesses, three witnesses, or even better. So now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to answer in a rebuttal, and he's going to give three pieces of evidence, okay? Now, here's the, here's the first one. Now, listen, did they, they hinge on this. He's going to make these bold assertions, and they will hold only on one condition. And the condition is, is that he is really the eternal son of God who's come down from heaven. And if that condition's not met, none of his evidence is true. Now, here's the first one, verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. And that initial evidence says this. Listen, piece of evidence one, you don't know where I'm from. And essentially what he means is, I am from the heavenlies and eternity. And I'm infinite, and you're finite, and you weren't there at the beginning when there was no beginning, but I was, and that's where I'm from. You were born in time and space. I have existed forever. Where I came from was heaven. So, that's argument one, and in and of itself... Um, it, you know, is fine. So he's going to offer argument two. Verse 15. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And you could read that as, I judge no one according to the flesh, is what he means. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now, here's how this evidence goes. One, I'm from eternity past and from the heavenlies. You don't know where I'm from. Secondly, you judge according to the flesh, or you judge things superficially, or you judge things only by human standards, or you judge things only by the outward appearance. It means that your, your ability to judge matters is limited. That's what Jesus is saying to them. They're limited because, listen, okay, you judge by outward appearance. God judges the heart, but you can't see the heart. 
and you, you can judge at best only on limited information because you cannot see the whole context. That, and that's why, incidentally, we're told, you know, don't judge. You can't see into somebody's heart. You don't know the whole context. And, and by judgment, you know, you size a person up. As the reader, we're, the, we're like the jury here, okay? And we're um, being presented with these facts, and the prosecution has come and says, listen, your, your word's no good. You, you can't do that. Jesus' counter evidence is this. You Pharisees, you aren't really qualified to judge this because your judgment is of the flesh. Now, as jurors, we've been reading the story, and we're able to look and go, you know what? He's probably right about that. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they keep getting things wrong. For instance, at the very beginning of the story in John chapter 1, the first person we're introduced to is John the Baptist. It's the religious leaders that are, have set out a full-scale investigation of John the Baptist, who's actually on the other side of the Jordan. He's actually just preaching the Old Testament, calling people to repentance, but they send this investigation because they want to know who sanctioned him. They want to shut him down. Well, then you get to John chapter 2, and Jesus is outraged. He shows up to the temple. There is this circus going on at the temple during Passover, and there's money changers, and people are buying and selling the holiness of God. And he throws the tables over, and he says, like, you've made this, my father's house a den of thieves. And the religious leaders, they show up, and they're more angry with Jesus for defending the holiness of God than they are the fact that God's holiness is being defiled. Because what you know in the background is they're benefiting from this. So we're, we're, we're supposed to take these judges into consideration. In fact, in chapter 5, there's this pettiness. They, you know, Jesus has healed this man as an invalid for 39 years by the pool. You know, He says, pick up your mat and walk. But it just so happens to be the Sabbath. So the guy who's been an invalid for 39 years, longer than you know, like most people had been alive, um, picks up his mat. He starts walking, runs into the religious leaders. They say, wait a minute, it's the Sabbath. You can't carry your mat. And the guy says, oh, well, it's actually the first time I've ever carried my mat. The fact is, the first time I've ever walked. They say, oh, well, we don't care about that. So they have this technicality. They look for Jesus. You know, he's instigated this deal. And, and Jesus points out to them how ridiculous they are on this technicality of the Sabbath because he's healed a man's whole body. And then you get to the end of seven and you find out the Pharisees, they think he's from Galilee, and nobody good can come from Galilee, and they don't know that he was actually born in Bethlehem, and he's from the line of David. So they're not good judges, is what we hear. Jesus certainly has the credibility, but that's not the one that cinches the deal. Now, verse 17, it is in your law, it is written, that the testimony of two people is true. 
Now here it is. I am the one who bears testimony about myself. In the, in the Greek, it's just simply, I am testimony. I am testimony about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Point one, you don't know where I'm from. Point two, you're not really very good judges of things. Point three, I am. And he's saying, when he says I am, I'm not alone. There are two of us, at least two of us. I think probably I could argue for the spirit here as well, but I don't have the time. I am. I am my own witness, which means I don't need another. The Father bears witness about me because I am one with the Father. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what they're understanding. They just can't believe it's coming out of his mouth. What Jesus is saying is, listen, you are hearing the word of God. My will and the Father's will they're one. I don't have a separate will. I don't have a separate agenda. The Father's will is my will. The Father's words are my words. The God who spoke creation out of nothing needs no witness. His words are sufficient by themselves because with the word, he creates all things and he, he, he brings life out of nothing. And the word of God was made flesh. God sent forth his word in human likeness from the heavenlies, from eternity. He sends forth his son into history and humanity. My words are his words because I am his word in the flesh. Just mind-blowing. I'm the light of the world. See, light differs from all other realities in that light alone in all of creation is self-evidencing. One old writer said it this way, the specific attribute of light is that while all other things are seen and known by means of light, the light itself is known alone. It brings out the clear nature of the word of revelation. It can only be a self-witness, for it would no longer be God's word if it demanded other authorities recognized by men to confirm its authenticity. God is not sitting around waiting for man to go, you know what? Yeah, I think that's probably God's word. And God sitting on pins and needles waiting for our, you know, well, I hope they, you know, will think it's me. Um, that's not it. So I want you to feel the weight of what it is that Jesus has just said. I am he. So verse 19, they said to him, okay, well, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. And he spoke these words in the treasury, um, and he taught in the temple, and no one arrested him because his hour did not come. The whole gospel of John is teaching us that the that not only is the Father known in the Son, the Father is known only in the Son. Martin Luther, if you'll indulge a Luther quote this morning, said, I am resolved not to believe or hear anything except Christ alone. 
I will not regard anything else as the voice of God. For God has ordained that he would not communicate with man through any other medium than through Christ alone. And by that, he means the testimony of the Gospels and the revelation of God about his son Jesus. In fact, Hebrews starts out that way many times. He used the prophets in the past. Now it is Jesus who is his revelation. To which Luther follows up, and this is good for us to hear this morning. So say to your own thoughts, you're not God or the Holy Spirit or his word. Do you know who the most influential theologian is in your life? You are. It is amazing what you can talk yourself into being true. In fact, it's amazing what you can say. You know what? That's the word of the Lord. No, it wasn't. It was a wandering mind. Oh, be careful when you say, you know, the Lord told me. Be careful with that. Oh, be so careful with it. That's why in the past, and I'm not going to do it this morning, but every now and then I'll pull a book out and I'll say, I know you're reading this book. This book's making claims that are far different than what Jesus is saying. Because if you want to know God, you have to know His Son. You will not know the Father apart from the Son. You will not hear from the Father apart from the Son. He's not going to show up and inspire you in your journal. Okay. Whoever aspires to know God without beginning at Christ you will wander in an endless maze. So, Jesus now takes control of the argument. And in verse 21, he, he says to them again, and this is hard. I mean, you, just thought, you thought, well, why? That was hard. No, it hadn't even gotten hard yet, okay? So he says to them, I'm going away. And you will seek me, and or but, you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. When Jesus says he's going away, he's looking forward to the whole reason that he became flesh and dwelt among us. He's going to the cross, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried, lay there for three days, and then be resurrected on the third day in a glorified body. And then he's going to ascend back to heaven where he came from. And in some ways, what they're saying, what he's saying to them is, and you're going to look for me. He's going to say it later again. And you're not going to find me. And then it's going to dawn on you that you didn't believe in me and that you don't believe me. And that's the sin he's talking about, the sin of unbelief. Listen, the sin of unbelief looks a lot of ways. One way, it looks like these Pharisees. They say, you know what? I don't believe you. I think you're a liar. 
fact, they didn't really want to hear anything. They had already had their minds made up. You, you threaten our authority. You threaten our influence. You threaten our understanding of the Scriptures. We don't want to hear from you. Well, that's a sin of unbelief. They're going to die in that, he says. Sin of unbelief looks a lot of other ways, too. You know how else it looks? It looks like, well, you know what? I, I mean, I, I'm not against Jesus. I never said I was against Jesus. I'm, I'm like pro-Jesus. I'll put a bumper sticker on my car. I'll listen to his radio station. I, I think he's a great guy. I want to be just like him. I mean, you know, except for the, the dress. But I, I'm, I'm in, you know? I, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not offended. I, yeah, I mean, I'm not, not going to do anything crazy. But I mean, you know, that's unbelief. You know, I'm, Jesus is a good man. His teachings should be followed. He's a, he's a righteous, moral figure in the history of humanity. Probably one of the best. Unbelief. It's not belief. It's unbelief. You'll die in that, Jesus says. It's a grave consequence. So the Jews, they misunderstand this bit, and they say, well, is he, is he saying that he's going to kill himself? Since he says, where you go, I cannot come, and so Jesus says in verse 23, he says, essentially, okay, let me, let me say this again to you. You're from below, I'm from above. Now, I'll say it again. You're from this world, and I'm not from this world. I told you that you'd die in your sins, for unless you believe that, and then he says it again, I am. You could put the he in parentheses. It's not there in the Greek. It's help us. I am he. You'll die in your sins. See, you're from the earth. You're from the fallen, corrupted creation. I'm from where sin does not exist. I am from an eternity of holiness and perfection and righteousness and beauty. And you're going to die if you do not believe who I am. I have come to save you. So verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? And he says, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. And he says, I have so much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They do not understand. Uh, they did not understand he'd been speaking to them about the Father. I, listen, I, I don't only talk about me and, and talk about God. I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. In fact, I'm dying to talk to you about them. you have to know you're in real danger of eternal judgment. You're going to lose your life. So Jesus said, verse 28, when you have lifted the Son of Man up, he's talking about the crucifixion, then you'll know 
that I am. And that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing with him. You'll know the fact of the cross. What you do not now believe from the word of the cross. In verse 30, and as he said these things, many believed in him. Now, John's whole point is that we would read this, we would believe he's the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have eternal life. John wants us to believe. And here we have in verse 30, people who believe. What would be super awesome and make a preacher's job super easy is if the passage ended right here. But it doesn't. Let me show you something. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if, and that's an if that's called a third class, could happen, could not happen. If you abide in my word, if you make my word your home, then you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's two things about that. One, Jesus came to set you free. He's the light of the world. He came to cast out the darkness. He came to set you free. You were a captive to sin and slavery and Satan, and he came to set you free from him. He came to rescue you. But what that also means is that you know about yourself that you're a sin to slave and death and Satan and that you need to be rescued and that you are in the darkness. And unless you know that, Jesus is not a Savior to you. Now look how he puts this. So they answer, verse 33, wait a minute, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Which is such a crazy statement because you go, really, you never enslaved to anyone? Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Rome? Okay, well, whatever. Um, how is it that you say you'll become free? And what they mean is, we've spiritually never been enslaved. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Slave doesn't remain in the house forever. You Jews may think you're in the house right now. You don't, you're not there forever. The Son, He remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. If you took a DNA, you know, ancestry.com, you know what it'd say? Abraham. But you go to spiritual.com, and you're going to find that your dad is Satan. <laughs> so what he says. You seek me because my word finds no place in you. And I speak of what I've seen with my father. And you do what you've heard from your father. There's no other word depicts sin like the word darkness. 
you're in darkness. In fact, chapter 9, this will help make sense of chapter 9 for you when he heals a blind man. What he's doing is all that he's been teaching. You're blind. You're in the darkness. And you have to be converted from your righteousness to a place where you confess that you're a hopeless captive of sin and death and Satan. They're going to say, no, 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 we're Abraham's guys. No, you're not. You're Satan's. And I know that because I'm the son of God and you want to kill me. You have to be converted from all of your goodness that you're counting on to confessing that you're a slave and you're a captive and you live in darkness and you have no hope. They don't like that. We don't like that. It means that we're not counting on anything else. It means, it means look, they, they can't say, yeah, but I'm from Abraham. Just like we can't say, listen, every one of us, your belief in Jesus comes also with this belief of the rescue that you need, of the desperation that you're in. They wanted to say, look, we believe in you, Jesus. It's great. We don't need you, but we believe in you. Listen, until you can say, and it's subtle for us, it's so subtle, these things that we've got to kind of consciously, I'm not saying renounce, I'm just saying without even knowing we're, we're like this. So, yeah, but I'm in America. And not only that, I'm a Texan. In the Bible Belt. And I went to Awana. I mean, I even got the, you know, old cubby jacket thing. Or my dad was a, you know, my dad read through the Bible once. Or my uncle's a preacher. Or, I mean, all these things that we go, well, all that has to give me a leg up. And in fact, besides all that, I'm better than everybody else I know. I mean, I hang out with sorry people, but I'm at least better than they are. I know about Jesus. No. Until you come to know, you are desperately hopeless in your sin. And none of that, where you're from and where you're born and what your skin color is and how much money you have and how smart you are, none of that matters. You're able to see Jesus as the one who came to rescue and to save you. And I'm afraid we have so much of that where we live. It's so easy. You already know all the language. So did they. Do you know Jesus? I'm out of time. I don't know where it went. Um, so your dad's the devil. Um, that's bad. 
You know why he says that. He says because here's what the devil does. He kills, he murders, he's, he's a liar. He's a liar who, who leads to murder. And he's going back to Genesis chapter 3. Because do you know what he does in Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of humanity? He goes and says, you know what? Did God really say that? Is that really what God said? That's why Jesus keeps saying, abide in my word. Believe my word. Bear my word. Because you buy into the lies. Well, I don't know if God really said that. And I don't know if that's really the only way God speaks. And I, you know, I don't know. Well, then comes sin, then comes death. And then he'll make this statement, and he says this thing, and, you know, they, they keep coming back to Abraham, and Jesus is like, okay, I finally I get it. I knew Abraham, by the way. And then they lose their freaking mind because, wait a minute, you can't know Abraham 2,000 years ago. He says, no, no, no. Before Abraham was, I am. The legal challenge is answered by Jesus. There is either the I am of the world, or there is the I am who is the Son. And every one of us are born into the I am of the world. You know? I am this, and I am that, and I'm working on becoming this. The I am of the world is founded upon itself. The I am of the Son is founded upon the Father. The world's concern was never about the I am of the Son. It was always about the I am of the world. What am I getting now? Jesus revealed the darkness of sin has blinded the world to itself. And so, Scripture will say, they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Christians claim, this is our only claim, I am His. If you are anything, that matters. It is, I am his. When Christ says, I am, our response to the claim is, yes, you are. You are. And so I'm yours. You know, it's interesting. I closed this way. I closed this way at a funeral yesterday. And it is... um, comes at the end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 23. And it says these are David's last words, which are kind of interesting because he says some other stuff after that, but they're the last words that matter. And he says, as I, you know, kind of essentially as I speak my last words, this is who I am. I was born the son of Jesse. And I was raised up 
by the God of Jacob. He anointed me. You know what that is? It's the date of his death and the date of his birth. And he has just filled in the entire dash in between. You ever heard that deal? You know, read about it. You know, your whole life's what the dash is. Well, you know what he says? Doesn't even matter. He could have said, you know what? I was king. I was the youngest of eight sons, but I was the best. Married some beautiful women. I killed a giant. Cut his head off. Pretty impressive. I mean, I had some bad days too. Bathsheba thing, killed her husband, probably shouldn't have done that. Because my whole life has been living out the consequences of it. Nobody had higher highs or lower lows than David. But nothing David did or didn't do took away from what God did. And you find out what David is saying is that my life is not about me. My life is about God. My life is the story of what God has done in raising me up. It's our story. I was born a slave to sin on planet Earth in the 20th century or 21st century. But for the grace of God in the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ, the light into the darkness, the word of life into death, to take on humanity, to become sin, to be made sin, to die my death so that I could live his life. When he says, I am, we say, yes, you are. And we renounce every other I am that there is. It is all or it is nothing, Jesus says. There's no neutral ground. If you live in the neutral ground, if you live in the neutral ground, hear me. You're an unbeliever. If you are not convinced that Jesus is the Son of God and died your death for your sin and he is your only hope, you're not a believer. And you're going to wonder. I'll tell you this morning, you can become a believer like this. You can say, you know what, Jesus, I do believe that. I don't understand it all. Listen, we're not going to understand it all. I didn't even get through the whole passage. I'm not going to get through the whole passage in my lifetime. Except to know God sent his son to die for you. If all he is is a good teacher to you, then you will die in that belief. But if he is the Son of God, made flesh, to save you from your sin, then you're one of his. You're a child of God. Your spiritual DNA says, God's. You've been reconciled to him. So if you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, you wrote this. You revealed this.